Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading this morning is found on page 1187 of the Church Bibles, 1187, and is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 17 to chapter 3 verse 5. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them, In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you, and your efforts might have been useless. Graham, thank you very much indeed. Do keep your Bibles open. Uh, Let me pray for us as we uh, consider that passage more carefully now. Father, thank you very much that as we sing, speak to me, speak to us, that we may speak. We're not singing or praying a vague and hopeless prayer. We thank you that you do speak to us through your word and pray indeed you would. We pray that you would touch our hearts and that it would be life-changing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me ask you this morning, what is your, your crowning glory? It's a phrase that perhaps you've used, uh, but this is what I mean by it. What is your greatest, or most beautiful thing, the most beautiful, greatest moment in your life, your crowning glory? For Don Parsons, the British Winter Olympian, I guess it's winning bronze in the skeleton in Pyeongchang on Friday. His crowning glory, shooting down an ice track on a metal tray six inches off the ground, travelling at 80 miles an hour, I'd be happy just to survive that and not end up as a skeleton. Don Parsons not only survived it, but won Team GB's first medal of this year's Winter Olympics. And now for the rest of his life, he will dine out on that moment. He'll be known for it, his most celebrated moment, his crowning glory. 51 seconds of madness. And what about you and me? When we reach the end of our lives, what is it we'll look back on and say, that, now that defines my life. That made it all worthwhile. Well, that's what this Bible passage is all about, our crowning glory. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we saw in chapter two how Paul needed to defend his ministry. You'll remember that the Christians in Thessalonica were suffering for being Christians. Um, uh, Chapter one, verse six, you see it there, that they suffered. Chapter two, verse 14, we've seen it several times. We see it again in our passage in chapter three, verse four. Now, we don't know exactly how they suffered, But we can imagine from what Paul writes that their opponents were trying every way possible to stop the Thessalonians from following Jesus. 
One of those ways was to discredit the Apostle Paul, the very one who had taken the message of the, of the gospel to the Thessalonians in the first place. And then in undermining Paul, they would undermine the gospel message that he delivered. And they would hope then stop people from following Jesus. Now we saw how the opponents of the gospel were accusing Paul of not being interested in the Thessalonians. And one of the things that strengthened their argument against Paul was that Paul hadn't returned to the the Thessalonian Christians to visit them. You can hear his opponents saying, he's ridden off into the night never to be seen again. If he really cared for you, he'd have come back to see you, but you haven't seen him since he left. And so Paul responds here in this passage, verse 17, brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Yeah, Paul had tried everything to get back to see the Thessalonican Christians. And for Paul with the Thessalonians, it definitely was not a case of out of sight, out of mind. But you'll see there in verse 17, absence makes the heart grow fonder. He was uh, only absent from them because, verse 17, he'd been torn away from them. We saw it back in Acts chapter 17, how Paul was driven out of town by the opponents of the gospel. And since that happened, verse 17, he made every effort to see the Thessalonians again. There's no doubt Paul wanted to see them. Verse 18, again and again he tried to see them, but Satan stopped him. He hadn't stayed away from them because he wasn't interested in them. He was desperate to see them, but no matter how hard he tried, he just couldn't get back to them. The opposition was so strong that the moment that Paul had walked back into town, they'd have eaten him for breakfast. Uh, Got him on some trumped up charges, locked him up, thrown away the key. And so, verse 1, he sent Timothy, verse 1 and 2. And I love the intensity of Paul's words in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 5. When I could stand it no longer, I sent out to find about your faith. Now here then is Paul defending his ministry, explaining why he's not personally been back to see the Thessalonians. And again, Paul doesn't defend himself because he's a defensive kind of guy or because he's bothered about the rep- his reputation, but for the sake of the Thessalonian Christians. He doesn't want them to think that he's unreliable because if they think he's unreliable, then they'll think his gospel is unreliable and they might give up following Jesus and so not make it to be with, with Jesus forever in eternity. So Paul is defending his ministry here. And if you read most of the commentaries, that's about all they say. But there's something much more profound and powerful going on in this section. Look with me at the last two verses of chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. I think these are the key verses for understanding this whole section. And I think these are two of the most surprising and amazing verses in this letter. And I might even dare to suggest that they are some of the most remarkable words in the New Testament. In verse 19, it's better be good after building up like that. In verse 19, Paul is imagining the day when Jesus returns and he, Paul, is in the presence of Jesus. Jesus just returned in all his glory and Paul is in his presence in eternity. And Paul asks the question in verse 9, when the Lord Jesus returns, in the presence of Jesus, verse 19, what is our hope, our joy or the crown in which we will glory on that day? See what he's asking? From an eternal perspective, what is my crowning glory? Paul asks, in eternity, in the presence of Jesus, what will bring me joy? I'd expect him to write, Jesus, being with Jesus. That's my joy in eternity. And of course, that is. But that isn't what he writes here. 
And Paul asks, what will be his crowning glory in eternity? Again, I'd expect him to write, being with Jesus. That's the most glorious thing, to be in the presence of the most glorious person in the entire universe. And again, that is true, but that isn't what he writes here. Verse 19, what is our joy, our hope, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? You, the Thessalonian Christians, verse 20, indeed it is you, indeed you are our glory and joy. And you see how staggering these words are. In the heavenly new creation, Paul imagines being in the presence of Jesus and saying to Jesus, this is amazing, Jesus. He might say something like, a living for you was all worthwhile. All the persecution I suffered, being shipwrecked and flogged and beaten within an inch of my life and facing danger for you and working tirelessly for you and going without sleep and enduring significant hunger and at times being desperately cold and having all the burden of being concerned for all the churches. It was all worth it. Now I'm with you in eternity. But here's the thing. As he's uh, talking to the glorious risen and Uh, ascended Lord Jesus Christ he sees out of the corner of his eye coming towards him the Thessalonian Christians and then Paul fills up with joy and pure wonder and he says to Jesus and look Jesus they're here too that's verses 19 and 20 the Thessalonian Christians being in eternity will be Paul's joy and his crowning glory Their being in heaven is what will define Paul's life. That really was worth it. That makes life worthwhile. I I did all I could to make sure they got to heaven as well. That was worthwhile. And what is uh, true for Paul and the Thessalonians will be true for us. Just imagine being with Jesus forever. Free from all the struggles of this life. If you're going through a hard time, it's a wonderful thought. Just imagine having stood firm for Jesus for years at considerable cost to yourself, giving up a promotion at work because you remained faithful to Jesus, losing important precious relationships because you would not compromise, suffering insult and hardship, giving up a life of ease to serve Jesus Christ and doing all that in order to be able to help people become Christians and then become established in Christ and then finally seeing others there in eternity others that you've helped to become Christians and go on as Christians, that will be pure joy. Imagine it, people you've discipled in the Christian life coming up to you in eternity and saying, thank you so much. Humanly speaking, you are the very reason that I'm now in eternal bliss and utter safety and security forevermore. What joy. That's worth living for. Now look, when we have that eternal perspective, it completely changes the way we live. It changes what we live for. It changes what motivates us to do all that we do, what fills our diary, how we spend our money, what we get anxious about. And that's what we see in these verses. Yes, it is Paul defending his ministry. But it's so much more. Uh, If you're taking notes, here's the first point. Don't worry, that was a long introduction. It's not going to be long, long, long. An eternal perspective, changing the way Paul lived, with a right eternal perspective, first point, we'll do everything we can to build up Christians. 
See, look again at verse, this is verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 17 again. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We've looked at this briefly already. The spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians filled Paul's mind like a parent concerned for a grown-up child they've not heard from for a while. Wondering how they're doing. Paul didn't stop thinking about the Thessalonian Christians. And we know he had good reason to be concerned for them. Uh, Paul himself had endured considerable opposition when he was in Thessalonica. And so he was sure that the Thessalonian Christians would also be persecuted, as indeed it worked out that way, as we see in chapter 3. And so he didn't stop thinking about them. How are they doing? Are they still going on with Jesus? Are they standing firm despite the opposition? He made every effort to see them. Verse 18, we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. I've had the privilege of working with a number of amazing Christian people over the years. I, live, I work with a number of amazing Christian people now, but I think of one that I work with in, in London. His name's Rico Tice, and many of you will have heard, heard of him. He's an internationally recognized, gifted evangelist. But let me tell you, for all his speaking worldwide and all his writing, Rico is a man of great integrity and of genuine kind concern for other people. I learned so much from rubbing shoulders with him. And one of the things that impressed me most was how he went out of his way, often at great cost to himself, to be sure that people both became Christians and kept going as Christians. So Rico would meet with busy business people in London late at night. You know, they'd, they'd, be, getting, they'd be coming out of work at a, a, a you know, silly o'clock, a, a, a late time at night. Rico's ready for bed, but that's the only time that they can meet with him, so he'd go and meet with them. He often opened his home to people, and I don't just mean inviting them in for a meal, although he did that, but allowing them to stay for as long as they needed, and I know at considerable cost to himself, I don't just mean financial cost, I mean considerable cost to himself, he would do everything he could to encourage and strengthen people in the Christian life. He went out of his way for them. That's Paul here, making every effort to see the Thessalonians, because when you've got an eternal perspective, and you know that one day, if people make it to eternity, it is going to bring you great joy, it is going to be your crowning glory, you will do that now. And with a right eternal perspective, we'll do everything we can to build up Christians. And second, we'll make personal sacrifices to build up Christians. This is chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. I've already pointed these verses out, but look at verse 1 and verse 5. When we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy. Verse 5, same thing. When I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I love that, when I could stand it no longer. Last year, one of our children, Joshua, didn't come home from school when we expected him to. Uh, we tried not to be too worried. He's 14, he's been cycling to school for some time now. And so we waited and waited and waited. And as the light began to fade, I became more and more anxious. So I texted a friend, is Joshua with you? No, came the reply. I called someone else, no reply. They called back moments later. I'm looking for Joshua. I just wondered if you've uh, seen him, is he with you? No, they said, have you tried so-and-so? Good idea, said I. So I tried them, no reply. And then I used these exact words to Caroline. I said, I can't stand it any longer. I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to see if I can find him. 
I was going to trace his route to school, see if there were any signs of an accident or if he was being bullied or beaten up or worse. You know what goes through your mind at this time. And as I opened the door to the house with car keys in hand, Joshua came round the corner on his bike. And I said, oh, Joshua. And before I could say any more, I'm grateful before I could say any more, he said, we won. (laughs) And then I remembered that he told us he had a badminton match after school. Now, why Caroline and I hadn't, hadn't remembered, we completely forgot. It was entirely our mistake. Uh, actually, I know exactly why we hadn't remembered, because we're getting old. Um, but uh, that's another point altogether. The point is this. When you really care for someone, when you really love them, when, you're, when they're that precious to you, you get worried for them when you think they're in danger, and you do anything you can for them. That's how Paul felt about the Thessalonians, but he wasn't able to text or phone a friend. He wasn't able to jump in the car or on a train. Indeed, we've already seen how time and again he tried to go and see them. And so, verse 1, when we could stand it no longer, verse 2, we sent Timothy. Now, of course, sending another person can sometimes just be a convenient excuse for not going yourself can be a demonstration that you're not really bothered. My time's far too precious. I'll send someone else to see you. The project I'm working on is far too important for me to go. I'll send one of my minions. You're not that important to me to give you my time. But everything in this passage tells us that is not what's going on here. Indeed, sending Timothy was a real sacrifice for Paul. Look how Paul describes Timothy in verse 2. Our brother and God's fellow gospel worker. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul said of Timothy, I have no one else like him. Timothy was a dear friend and a great gospel worker. He was exceptional. And Paul was prepared to send him at considerable cost to himself. Verse 1, we were left by ourselves in Athens. Now, it's prob- I won't go into all the ins and outs here, but it's probably like, it's likely, probably likely, it's likely that this is the royal we. Sending Timothy left Paul alone in Athens. But even if he was still there with Silas, it was still a cost. And you might think there's, there's worse places to be than Athens. Athens is a nice place to go. Loads to do in Athens. The sights, visit the Parthenon, the entertainment, go to the games. Now, granted, holidays are always better when you're with someone than when you're on your own but I can think of worse places to be than Athens. But if you're tempted to think like that, Acts chapter 17 gives us a completely different picture. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 16, as Paul arrived in Athens, you might remember this, he was greatly distressed to be confronted by a city full of idols. For Paul, Athens was a difficult and distressing place to be. And as he went there to preach the gospel, it was a potentially dangerous place to be because whenever Paul preached the gospel, it resulted in trouble for him one way or another. Being in Athens was no pleasant city break for Paul. And so being left on his own in gospel mission was no small thing. But he was prepared to experience the distress and danger on his own because he cared so much for the Thessalonians. See, when we have an eternal perspective, when our crowning glory is other people getting to be in eternity with Jesus with us, then we'll be prepared to make personal sacrifices for them, for them to be going on as Christians. And so verse 2, when we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, 
We sent him to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. See, there's the big thing that Paul's concerned about. He wanted to strengthen and encourage the Christians in Thessalonica to make sure they didn't give up following Jesus, but they kept going to the end. That they too would be with Jesus in eternity. It is interesting, that was a major part of Paul's ministry, strengthening and encouraging. We often think of Paul as a great evangelist, going from city to city to preach the gospel and plant churches, which of course he did do. But as you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that Paul went out of his way, and I really mean went out of his way geographically, to return to the churches that he had planted, precisely to do this, to strengthen and encourage them. Paul's great passion for proclaiming the gospel and planting churches was matched by his great desire to see Christians strengthened and encouraged so that they would make it to be in eternity with him and with Jesus. And that's why Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica. And you see, the Thessalonians needed to be strengthened and encouraged in their faith so that, verse 3, they wouldn't be unsettled by the trials that would come their way, by persecution from the opposition. Running right through this little section, we see that we're in a spiritual battle. Chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says Satan stopped him from returning to the Thessalonians. Chapter 3, verse 5, he speaks of his concern that the tempter might tempt them away from following Jesus. We're in a spiritual battle. And sometimes that comes in direct opposition. And that's why Paul needed to send Timothy to the Thessalonians. See, verse 2, we send him to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one be unsettled by these trials. Verse 3, you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you you would be persecuted and it turned out that way, as you well know. There'll always be opposition to the gospel because Satan hates God and he hates Christians and he wants to take down as many as possible. And so when you're a Christian, you have an enemy. It's a real and present danger. And so we need each other to strengthen each other to keep going look what Paul says in verse 5 for this reason when I could stand it no longer I sent to find out about your faith I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless it's very striking isn't it this is a bit of an aside but I was quite struck by this this week to see what Paul is frightened of he wasn't frightened of suffering for the gospel We saw in Acts chapter 16, he went to Philippi and he was thrown into jail. And the moment he got out of jail, he went to Acts chapter 17, he went to Thessalonica and preached the gospel again. He wasn't frightened of going to jail. But he was fearful, see it there in verse 5, of the Thessalonian Christians being tempted away from following Jesus. That's what really made him fearful. That's what kept him awake at night. That other people wouldn't make it to heaven. So to ensure that Christians were strengthened and encouraged to stand against the enemy and to make it to eternity, he was even prepared to make huge personal sacrifices. As I've studied this week, I found myself rejoicing that so many people here do the same. It's glorious. As I look out at you, I see one after another who are doing this. We have a small army of small. Uh, we have a, an army of small group leaders and of people serving on the student team. It's wonderful. We have over 100 people working with the youth and children, many of them over there right now. We have others working with homeless and the elderly. As I look at you people, I see people making personal sacrifices, committing week after week, 
Weekend after weekend, the youth team giving up Friday evening after Friday evening. I know what I want to do on a Friday evening, sit in front of the telly. Those on the soup wagon giving up Tuesday night after freezing cold Tuesday night. Year after year, here are people committed to strengthening and encouraging Christians. It's wonderful. So many of you are doing it. And as you do, see here that it's worth it. You'll get to eternity and you'll see the very people you've worked with all these years. You'll see them in eternity and you'll have such joy. As you're talking to Jesus, in the presence of the Lord Jesus of all things, you will point to others that you've encouraged and you will fill up with joy and say, look, Lord, they're here too. It's wonderful. They will be your crowning glory. You will look back on your life and you say, all that teaching in the Sunday school was worth it because look at all those that were in the Sunday school that are now with Jesus. Didn't see it at the time, but look at it now. But as I rejoice in the many who are giving themselves sacrificially in the work, I also urge others to be about that sacrificial living, to be strengthening and encouraging Christians to keep going. Most weeks as a staff team, we find ourselves talking about the need for more people to be about this very work, for more people to take on responsibility that would mean a regular sacrificial commitment. We need people to head up the, uh, the creche at 11 a.m., I haven't got anyone heading that up at the moment. We need small talk leaders during the, uh, during the week. We need a leader to head up commotion on Tuesday afternoons or it will close in September. We need people to go on the church plant to Doncaster to ensure that Doncaster has a strong, vibrant Christian church right in the heart of that town. Now, these are not easy things. It means sacrifice. But you see, when we have a right eternal perspective... We will do everything we can to build up Christians. We will make personal sacrifices to build them up because we want them to be there with us in eternity. And that is the heart of godliness, by which I mean that is what it is to be like God. Because as we look at the Lord Jesus today, dying on the cross as we take communion, we remember that is precisely what he did. He did everything he could, making the ultimate personal sacrifice so that people would be saved for eternity. It's a remarkable thought. His delight and joy will be having a people who he calls his very own with him forever. That's why he did it. And so as we take communion in a moment and as we kneel, we should kneel in thankfulness, thankful that he is prepared to make the the sacrifice of himself to secure heaven for us. But then as we get up from the rail and as we go back to our seats, we should be motivated to follow his example, not that we can die to take away the sins of others, but the example of being ready to sacrifice ourselves so that others will be in eternity too. And if we live a life like that, well, that will be our crowning glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you so very much that you do give us a glimpse into the wonderful heavenly new creation. 
We thank you that you do that in all sorts of ways in your word. And we thank you for this wonderful little glimpse here of, of what will really matter when we get there. And we pray it would indeed motivate us and be, as I prayed at the beginning, life-changing, shaping and changing the way we live and what we live for so that when we do reach eternity, we will be able to look back and be thrilled that we invested in things that really mattered, people, and that they're with us too. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.